ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデベガ。ルーデ
career and geographical trajectory. We talked about the keys to what make his life in a roaming multicultural family work. And, and then we talked about him creating poetry for the BBC in Japan's darkly legendary Sea of Trees, also known to some as the Suicide Forest at the foot of Mount Fuji. The untied soul may seek return to the volcanic womb of a virgin forest whose virginity is restored to semi-millennial rhythms. Of I went there with three Japanese poets. So we went there and we all like went our separate ways in the forest and went and hiked and had our experiences and, and wrote. And then we recorded readings of the poems in the forest. And we talked, you know, just a lot more about his life as a roaming, intellectual, hepcat, poet, rapping, cool dude currently living in Japan with his wife and two kids. And because I want Rutabaga to always have a bunch of cool music, I coaxed Jordan into a multilingual rap. And by the way, it's a rap about being multilingual. And I got him to let me use some of his soon-to-be-released music. To kick it off, let me just dive back in with a little bit of a new track by Jordan, and then we'll start talking about one of his typically atypical days. Hey man, good to see you. <laughs> well, number one, starting with yesterday, what the hell did you audition for? So yesterday uh, was an atypical Saturday morning where I ended up uh, auditioning for uh, an ASICS commercial. They do this thing with three poets who do this kind of spoken word style um, poem that's supposed to motivate like a bunch of athletes, you know, to do their best. And so they were auditioning for the athletes and then they're auditioning for the poets. So I had to go in there and read a poem that was kind of motivational and they gave it to you they gave me the poem did you have it in advance to i had it like okay. two days in advance so i got good? to read through it i gotta say when i when i first read it i thought no this isn't very good actually it's a poem you know it's not great it should be rewritten quite a lot but there's enough heart to it that i could do something with it and i think that like tokyo has a really really rich poetry reading culture you know, they don't just talk about like poetry nights. They have like a separate word, uh, rodoku, which, you know, means basically reading out loud. And to them, it's a very different art. You know, writing poetry and reading poetry are two very different mm -hmm. things. And, and so um, I've been really involved in that scene. And it's taught me a lot about the kind of the power of poetry and the way that it means something different when you put voice to it. It's cool. Are there any people, say, who are known for their reading other people's poetry, but they're you know, just their reading skills like you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, there are a bunch in Tokyo. And um, I, I know I know one girl who's actually in, I'm in a, I'm in a poetry unit called Atta, A-T-T-A. And um, one of the girls in that is uh, not really a poet herself, but her reading skills are just amazing. And she's got this really, really cool voice. So we do readings together and she's part of this poetry unit, but she's not a poet. So 
reverse chronology here yeah. completely. Or how did you get into poetry? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and especially like Japanese poetry. Yeah. Because you haven't been in Japan for a long time until this, you know, you're in California for a long time in Korea. And yeah, I mean, I've always, so, I mean, I've been into poetry since I was a kid, just in the sense of like reading it and writing, you know, writing my own poetry. I started writing hip hop songs when I was in sixth grade. You know, just stuff that was going on, you know, in my life. And then as in high school, the songs became a little more abstract, probably inspired by people like De La Soul and, you know, so, you know, and then other people like um, Aesop Rock, you, you know, kind of inspired the changes of directions and this and that. So I've always written. And then um, in grad school, I started translating a lot and took a, a translation seminar with Michael Heim, who was the translator of um, like people like Milan Kundera, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, yep. and stuff like that. So he was a really amazing guy and got me kind of hooked on translation. So then when I finished the PhD at UCLA, I went out, my first tenure track job was at Roger Williams University in Rhode Island. And um, I spent a fair bit of time up at Brown University, just kind of going to events because they had a lot of you know, great stuff going on. And a poet. Uh, Nomura Kiwao, who's really well known in Japan, was, was there doing a reading along with the translators of his work. And one of them is a professor at Brown University, Forrest Gander, who's uh, an incredible... I mean, I, I almost hesitate to introduce him as a poet and a translator. He's like the kind of guy... I mean, he's like you. Like, I want to introduce him as like a force of nature first and just uh, tell you what an amazing soul <laughs> he is. And then I'll tell you what he does, which is, you know, right. he's an amazing poet and translator, <laughs> professor at Brown, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I just kind of ended up hanging out with him, and he invited me into a translation project on this notoriously difficult poet, Yoshimasa Gozo. And then that book just finally came out, like, last year. So I ended up translating Yoshimasa Gozo and Nomura Kiwao. And you were doing this while you were in the While States. I was still in the yeah, States. Yeah. So then, yeah, this is the roundabout <laughs> version of the story. So then um, another poet, uh, Mizuta Noriko, got... A, an award, got a poetry award, and she wanted someone to translate her poems into English. Um, she had got the award from like the Swedish embassy, it's called the Chikara Prize, and so uh, her son was my advisor at UCLA, and she had apparently asked him, like, do you know any good, you know, grads or recent grads, you know, mm -hmm. who might be interested in translating, and he said, oh, Jordan's been translating Japanese poetry lately, why don't you, um, why don't you see if he'd be down? So I translated a handful of her poems, and I came out for this symposium that was held um, in her honor after she won the prize. And I hadn't really thought about this, but she's the chancellor of a university system here, or she was uh -huh. until recently. And so um, the first time I met her, I was, uh, I came to Tokyo, you know, for that uh, about three years ago. And um, I was staying in the university lodging and I got a call at like 9.15 and the conference was supposed to start at 10. And they're like, oh, can you come 15 minutes early? The chancellor just wants to talk with you. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. I like throw on some clothes, cruise over there. And I get invited into the, you know, the top floor, like super executive, really beautiful, you know, office with like white leather sofas and flower arrangements and stuff. And nice. she's like, thank you for, you know, translating um, my poetry. I really love the translations. Um, we look forward to spending the day together. Why don't you come be a professor at Josai? Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> I was like, wow. So anyway, long story short. Were you like immediately yes? Or did no, you, like, I, I wasn't. Gotta, gotta talk to my wife. Well, actually, they, they invited me only for a one-year visiting position. And I thought that that'd be really cool because I'd mm -hmm. come here for a year. The kids would get to experience Japan. Then we'd go back to my job at Cal State Long Beach, which I loved and was tenure track. And I plan on staying there, you know, for a very long time. But then Long Beach actually denied me. They said, uh, you, can't, you can't do a year visiting position somewhere until after tenure. 
Uh, and I was about three, maybe four years away from tenure. So yeah. I was kind of like, oh, man. That's a long so I time. told that to Jose. I said, I'm sorry, I, I can't leave my position for a one year. And they said, well, then we'd like to hire you permanently with a promotion to associate professor. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. So sweetening the pot. They sweetened it quite a lot. And then, we, anyway, long story short, we decided to come here, give the kids an adventure. But this all kind of syncs up because, you know, she remained chancellor for my first three years uh, or two and a half years in the position. And um, she created a International Modern Poetry Center, uh, which is a research center that, like, that also um, funded and hosted all of these incredible um, symposia with like poets from all over the world um, coming in. Great poets like Bei Dao, uh, yep. you know, who lives in uh, Hong Kong, and Moon Chong Hee from Korea. Just, I mean, all these, all these poetic heavyweights. It was incredible. So by doing that and by just kind of hosting and being the MC at a lot of these um, poetic uh, symposia, I started getting to know everybody and reading their works and hearing what mm -hmm. was going on in Japanese poetry. I then got invited to be the Japanese poetry editor for Tokyo Poetry Journal. And I put out a, a special volume last summer, uh, summer of uh, 2017, introducing kind of contemporary poets, the current generation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I translated about a dozen of them, and then I asked other translators to translate another dozen. And we kind of presented, you know, the, the who's who of, of poetry now in Japan. And it was a really cool volume. But at the same time that I was here, like, as I started making friends with poets, um, and I started translating more, my own poetry writing started coming out more and more in Japanese. And so I started doing kind mm -hmm. of bilingual poems where I'd, I'd write the first line, in either Japanese or English, and then translate it really loosely into mm -hmm. the other language. Then I'd write two verses and just kind of let them go wherever they went, you know, following sort of rhyme and sound and thought um, back and forth in each one, and then kind of would pair them together in these uh, helix poems, as I've been calling them. Uh, and then I and I entered like a Poetry Slam Japan last year. And would you say that style that you're working in is it like kind of unique? Anybody else doing it? Does it follow a tradition, or are you I just kind of winging? It's a bit of innovating. It's a bit of it's influenced by a lot of different things. I mean, it's really weird because my influences are like a mixture of LL Cool J, mm -hmm. Shel Silverstein, a bunch of literary theory, my own like proclivities and loves and interests, um, and then a bunch of Japanese poets that I've um, that I've translated. And uh, so it's really, yeah, it's really kind of unusual. I, I gained this really weird type of minor, you know, fame in the poet world when I made it into national finals in Poetry Slam Japan. And then I, I thought I would just get crushed immediately, but I made it into the final, final round, that's, which is the that's top four. That's crazy. The and it's here in Japan, four. and people are invited internationally to, or was no, it? No, it's else? all Japanese. Okay. So it was like there was a Nagoya slam, there was a Osaka oh, okay. slam, there were two slams in Tokyo, and you had to like make it through those yeah, yeah. to like get to the national finals. So as, as we got down to the last two performances of the, of the night, like I was the second to last performer. And like after I, you know, did my performance you get scored there are judges right away so i got the scores went up and i was like super far in the lead and i was like what that's how cool, did this man. happen and then the last guy comes up uh nakauchi komoru who's a, a tv talent and a comedian really cool dude and we're, we're friends now but uh I, like he needed like to get by far the highest score of the whole contest like to catch up with me and i was like whoa this is crazy i might be going to paris for the world cup you yeah. know because they send the winner and then uh he needed like a 27.9 to beat me. 
and he got exactly oh, a 27.9 and beat me by 0.1. <laughs> that's so hilarious, it was, man. It was super funny. That's sweet, though. That's something to be proud of. It was. Yeah. And, you know, I, what, what, what I was even prouder of is that, like, um, I got to co-translate his his poems for Paris, you know? And it was really cool, cool to, yeah. like, get to know so him. So you still, like, got to participate in that. In that's a, right. Know, that's right. And I still, peripheral. you know, we still keep in touch. And when he comes to Tokyo, we go to events together. And he, so, yeah, there's just been, like, all these different, um, you know, connections that, like, really pulled me in. Yeah. And the, the, the poetry community here, there's this other side story that I should tell you. And, and that is the crushing loneliness that is moving to Tokyo from Los Angeles. I mean, yeah, and I, I think I think I'm not alone in experiencing it. And it's not just because I moved from Los Angeles. But, you know, L.A. is all about like sunshine and hugs. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, like I don't even greet friends with handshakes in L.A. Yeah. It's just like straight to hug. You know, what's up? And so you're just constantly surrounded by that 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 friendliness, that happiness, you know. And then you come to Tokyo and everyone's like smushed against each other in a train, but they're all pretending that the other people around them doesn't don't exist. Yeah, and it's incredibly lonely. In Did some you mention ways. this the other night? Because the theme of loneliness or isolation in Tokyo came up. I wouldn't be surprised. It, it was either you, but it might have been my buddy Craig. I was hanging out with. I think it or, was him because I don't think we talked about it. Or Valentino, but yeah, they were saying basically the same thing. Like, 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 yeah. If you're a a single person here well, i mean you're not you'll, you have a family so i don't know how that affects the loneliness factor but they're gone they're my kids are doing homework tw- you know whenever right, they're awake right. and my wife is like you know dealing with permission slips and packing yeah, lunch yeah. and making sure that their school lunchbox napkins are ironed and folded correctly yeah, yeah. and stuff. i hear you yeah well and when i first got here and was adjusting to that that loneliness you know i read this incredible anthology uh, by Saihate Tahi, and uh, the anthology is titled Shindeshimauke no Bokurani, uh, which means basically for, for us dying types. Uh, but uh, the, the word type is K, uh, which can also mean like in Gingake, uh, which means like the uh, talking about like a system, like a solar system or a or a galaxy or something like that. So it was talking about how this like death becomes a sort of uh, system and like pulls you in. And her poems were so fucking lonely and misanthropist in a lot of ways. And and I read her poems and I just got them, you know, like about yeah. you get to this point where you don't like care about other people and you don't you don't want to sort of deal with them or feel anything. And, you know, but narrated in such brilliant ways. It was the first time in my life I ever just like sat down and translated a book without ever like contacting the author or seeing if it would get published. I wow. just thought, I'm just going to do, do this because it. it's yeah. so amazing. Yeah. I read the book like 10 times. But so poetry to me was the antidote, the absolute antidote to that crushing loneliness because the poetry world in many ways, it's like stepping into L.A. Like I walk into a venue, you know, I walk into the Ruby Room in Shibuya or or um, into Bar Gadi Gadi in, in Ike no Ue or something like that. And it's just incredible. I mean, you know, it, it, once again, there you are. It's the hugs. It's the smiles. It's the what's up, my brother, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and people are not, they're not having the kind of conversations that you're supposed to have. You know what I mean? They're not saying the things that you're supposed to say. There's so many set phrases in Japanese, and there's a way to do everything. And you go there, and all of a sudden, it's like they just it's real. blow the top off, and they're yeah. talking about real shit, and they're well, being themselves. On the other hand, I would say, you know, that's the kind of person you are, you know. You you make it easy for people to connect with you. And, you know, I mean, it's your intellect and your spirit. That's kind you of... Know, you know, that's true, man. I have seen you in in various countries, and, you know... People are attracted to you, you know, as, as uh, you know, 
physically is not what I mean, but Woo-hoo. of course physically too. <laughs> I am, I know, but <laughs> yeah, that's right, baby. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you, you got a, you've got a spirit that people like when they see you. And I can see you walk. You could walk into any event, probably in Tokyo, and people are gonna like be drawn to you. They're gonna, they're just gonna. You put, you have an aura. So I think, I think that helps. So, let's say if I was a lonely guy in Japan and I and I delved into poetry, if I went to those same events, I would still probably be over in the corner. Like, how can I fit in and meet these people? And they would just kind of be like, "What's that creepy guy doing over there?" You know? Dude, I'm serious. Like. I'm com- so it's partly your charm and personality and aura and all that. I thank you. It's very kind of you. And definitely it's been my mission to like try to also bridge the communities like the English uh, poet community and the Japanese poet community yep. and kind of get everyone knowing each other because there were sort of two different worlds. And that's been coming together more. That's exciting. Yeah. I totally well, disagree with your assessment of yourself, though. I, I can get in a hypothetical scenario how like some <laughs> random dude might do that. But you're, you're always the same. People always come. I'm a bit of a wallflower unless I'm with some friends or something. But, you yeah. know, people people gravitate to you, too. I but mean, not, that's what not strangers so much. Like I've I've been in probably 20 different bars by myself since I got to Tokyo this week. Just well, I'll pop in a random place and have a beer. And I mean, like, except for some college students who want to who want to practice English, I have to make an effort, you know, to, <laughs> to meet girls or interesting anybody, girls or guys or whatever. It's like, you know, I, I'll just stand there in the corner for an hour and like, okay, this sucks. I'm gonna leave. You know, I don't, I don't. It's a it's a challenge for me to interact with strangers. I admire that. I have that too. But instead of instead of me sitting there for an hour in the corner, I'll just get the fuck out. Yeah, well. Like I don't even I can't even stand. Well, that's if my beer lasts an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if it's yeah, I'll get out as soon as that beer's gone probably. I think that's also why I used to drink so much because it's like I have this intense yeah. desire to be with people and talk with people, you know, like a dog. Like I just, you know, I just gravitate to people and a conversation is like getting scratched behind the ears, but I'm also so paranoid of talking to another human being that like, yeah. I, like unless I was out I with friends, relate. I would need like 10 beers before I could really just be myself and walk up to people and say, you're interesting. I want to yeah. talk to you. Well, that's me. I still use alcohol as, as a you know, social lubricant. It's kind yeah. of my only way, like not, my, not my only way, but it's, it's, it's definitely, I still rely on it too much. You know, I do. It's a, it's a good social lubricant. That's yeah. why I think like 90% of the adult world uses it, you know? Right. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> well, it's funny that because this whole path of this conversation right now was going back to a question that's been in my head for like 30 minutes. But like you're kind of into this like uh, you're doing a lot of things with, you know, uh, academic poetry and literature and translating. But also you're doing a lot of street street kind of underground stuff in clubs and cafes. Did you have to like really was it hard to find that? Did you have to go ser- search for it? And did you have to go into events without knowing anybody or did you get pulled into it by people you knew it was a bit of both i usually nowadays there's somebody that i know that's going to be in an event but it has been the case where i just showed up at events not knowing if i would know anybody and then it ended up that i knew people there hey let's uh i'm gonna pause for a sec so we met in korea I went there. I went. To, I moved to Seoul in 2000, so it was probably not long after that. Do you remember how we met? Yeah. Good, because I, I don't. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I really it don't. It was epic, exactly. man. It was epic. It was at this orgy. No. Okay, so I, I moved. I went to Korea for the first time, summer of '99, for a six-week English teaching thing at a university in uh, Sokcho. 
I met up with uh, with you and Simon and all the other um, you know former English teachers from this camp, and you guys were pretty much my boot camp of how to survive in Korea and mm -hmm. how to how to have a good time. And I really gravitated toward you guys because you were you were living out loud. You were doing all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, you were partying, and that was a big part of my life. You know, we went out to tons of bars and clubs, yeah. and that that Hoji was Puji. yeah, Hoji Puji, where yeah. I met my wife. But uh, Going out with you guys was always an adventure, but that wasn't all we did either. And I love yeah. that you guys always had other stuff going on. And so, you know, like going out um, rafting or kayaking or climbing a mountain Hiking. or and some just random adventures, you know, ending up at like Mogyoktang in the middle of nowhere, putting mud on ourselves and I remember that. sitting yeah. out in the rain and drinking makoli in the middle of a, oh, that of was a farm field. Herb, herb farm. Yeah, that yeah. You and I went. I was a blast. Yeah, one of my fondest memories too. And, uh, but, but I think... You guys also helped me figure out my attitude and who I want to be because one thing that I noticed, you know, in moving to Asia for the first time is that, like, it's really easy to lose who you are and to lose your values and to um, kind of go off the rails and to really feel like you're in a wonderland because it, it, it really doesn't feel real. And that's not due to some, you know, no, attitude or politics that I was aware of. It's just there's something happens to you when you're thrown into a world when you don't understand anything. And you 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 need some kind of foundation, and you guys helped me. And a couple of times I was going off the rails, and you guys kind of held the rail up a little bit, and were like, "Dude, stay, you know, stay the course here." And uh, that that I also helped me out. I don't remember too. consciously, you know, doing anything that would have uh, you know affected your life or. Mm -hmm. Other than just kind of hanging out, but I don't know, maybe, I mean, but uh, my memory sucks too. Well, so. there's a, there are a number of times, I mean, you know, in, in general, it was mostly just having a great time and yep, you guys yep. setting an, an example by being who you are, which is rad. But in a lot of ways, you guys like, like were a very stable base for me while also just having a lot of fun and being yeah. inappropriate. Like in you said, ways. it is like, uh, what, what was the term you used? But it's like, uh, it's like not real. It's like fantasy when you're, and it, you know, for me, the whole 15 years maybe I was in Korea it was kind of like even to the very end it was still a little bit you're just in this you know life is easy you're making good money you don't have to really play by that society's rules you know because you're just kind of in the as a foreigner living abroad you're sometimes you're just in the fringes so it's like it's not like reality you know I mean totally. it is and it isn't like you're still working hard and you're making money and you're paying bills and all that but I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like every day I woke up, I would, even in my last time in Korea, I was like, oh, you know, I'm just going to go out. Anything could happen today, you know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I do. It's funny because I remember, you probably don't remember this quote, but I just laughed my ass off because we could joke about being inappropriate more than like actually doing some of the stuff that we joked about. But I was like, we were in, we were in Shincheon and we were trying to catch a cab over to Hongdae and it was like 11 at night on a, you know, Friday or Saturday or something like that. And there's no, like there's a million people waiting for cabs and there's no cabs they are all full and they're just like driving right by us and we were out there for like a half an hour and I was like god this is the fucking quintessential soul moment and then uh, and was like like what and I said oh you're like just standing here waiting for a cab you know trying to get from Shincheon to Hongdae with like a thousand people and you're like oh man I thought you were gonna say wait I said that you said that <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> but I mean, you were completely joking. You did. I mean, that was I, not. None of us did that. But it was just. It was just like that, like dark sense of humor. I thought you were actually gonna say, <laughs> kicking the taxi for not stopping or something. <laughs> anyway, two moments to edit out yeah, of your, yeah, of your exactly. interview. <laughs> I don't know. I might have to leave mine in. <laughs> You're Sorry. <called> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Damn. You want me to re-say it so you can blame it on me? No. Yeah.
was bleep out his name. Yeah, right? Oh, man. So those were, yeah, those were great times. When you left there, so you met Kazuko, we, uh, we, you had a girlfriend yeah. that you met in Korea, Japanese girlfriend. Yeah. Did you know you were getting married to her when you left Korea, or were you guys already pretty much, planning? I can't pretty remember Pretty much. That. We met December 1st at HodgePodge, and I went up to her, and I, I've never seen a more beautiful woman in my life, and there was just something special about her, and I walked up and I said, you're beautiful, I love you. She wouldn't talk to me at all, and like her friends would, like sat in between us, but I kept trying to talk to her for like three hours, which is not me also. Like if someone's like, go away, I'm, I go yeah, away, but I, yeah. just, I was just totally hung up on her. And I came to my office at Korea University on Monday, and there was a note on my door, and it was from Kazuko. And I was like, oh shit, oh shit, I was inappropriate. She, I would study Korean with the Japanese students. And then she, her friends also had a going away party at the same nightclub, and there, we had mutual friends, you know, through the Japanese community yep. in my Korean class. So um, it was love at first sight. I mean, for sure. We we basically after after a, like a week of dating, we were totally inseparable, and within one month, we had committed to moving to Japan together. And I had this great plan. Like I was going to finish my Kode contract and get my one year bonus, and go to China yeah. and buy a motorcycle, and drive the motorcycle to Europe, and then go back to the States for grad school. And I probably would have just died somewhere, like drunk and broken in pieces on the in the Himalayas or something. But anyway, um, better plan came up, and that was moved yep. to Tokyo with Kazuko. She had a job as a editor for a fashion collections magazine. She started traveling the world to Italy and and uh, France and and uh, doing the you know covering the fashion shows. So yeah, I left. I remember. I left yeah. in February, and and we we basically moved in together in Tokyo after that. I remember two things. One, being jealous and envious when you when you start dating her, because I do remember she's being a good girl. How attractive she was, and very cool, and you know, smart, and just uh, sweet. Everything was great about I, her. I got I got lucky. Yeah. You know? And that and um, you know, well, when all, I woke up this morning, I got to hold her in my arms and make pancakes, you know, yeah. for us and our two kids and our French exchange student who's staying with us. That's and awesome. We've awesome. had seven moves together, you know, and each and several of those moves have been like 5,000 mile moves, you know. That's crazy. So, you know, we've survived thick and thin and we still get along pretty damn well considering, you know, yeah. what we have on our plate. Well, you obviously both like that adventure. I mean, you both have a similar spirit to be yeah. able to do that and not complain about it just like yeah we're gonna go 5,000 miles and we're gonna start a new life and yeah. just make the most of it in, have fun in with two it. weeks or something yeah. like that it's always like it's a, all of our moves are always these like last minute things it's never it's never it's never yep. planned out and smooth what was I gonna say oh yeah so when did you know you were gonna get your PhD was that something kind of always pl planned or did you decide that in Korea or in Japan I decided it in Korea um, I, I had a kind of debate between getting um, like a PhD and a MFA or something like that I thought about doing that in like in screenwriting um, or some other kind of writing I actually when I was in Korea I sent out an application to UCLA but right after I sent out the application literally two days after I sent out the application I met Kazuko and so um, I told Kazuko when I when I met her and we got serious just weeks later I said look I haven't got a reply from UCLA yet but I want to tell you that regardless of what they say whether I get in or not I'll go with you to Tokyo and and you can you can work for a year and I'll ask UCLA to postpone a yep. year uh, and we'll see what happens and UCLA was really kind about it they said well we don't officially allow you to postpone or defer but 
um, we really like your application, and if you reapply next year, we'll remember you. Very cool. And and yeah. and you know, don't worry about it. And then, so I spent a year in Tokyo, and then reapplied to UCLA. And interestingly, they said, well, now you have Japanese, you know, language. Uh, your your Japanese language skills are up. You're an even better candidate. We're going to offer you nice. a full funding package and pay tuition plus a salary. For you to come to UCLA. And you weren't going to get that the first time I, I don't think so. They didn't yeah. say anything about it in my yeah, first application sweet. letter. And then the second year when I was in Tokyo and got the acceptance letter, it also, they personally called me on the phone and like told me that they'd given me the full funding yeah. package. It was, it was amazing. That's cool. Man. So it kind of yeah. felt like one of those signs from the universe that I'd done the right thing, you know, in, in not rushing into grad school and instead fo following love. Yeah. And I told him, I was straight up. I told the professor, uh, Catherine King, the chair of comparative literature at the time at UCLA, I, I said, I know this sounds really corny, but um, I met a woman and I'm in love with her and I'm sure that we're going to get married and I need to spend this year uh, with her in Tokyo so she can work before we go to LA. And she was just, she didn't even blink. She's like, yep, 100%, awesome. no That's problem. Sweet. By the time I arrived at UCLA, Kazuko was pregnant with Rio. <laughs> That's awesome. So when I, my yeah. first day of classes, she was seven months pregnant and Rio was born in, uh, in November, right after we got settled in LA. Yep. Hey, in a nutshell, give me a rundown on South America, you know, what you're doing there, and then maybe how that led into Japan. So, uh, between Seoul and Tokyo, I moved to, well, I didn't move, I visited for about five weeks in Guatemala and did a homestay and studied a bunch, and, and then uh, studied a lot of Spanish in graduate school. And um, half of the dissertation was on Octavio Paz, a uh, Mexican poet. So I did, you know, a little bit of um, work in Mexico, very, very small trips and one conference and stuff. But um, I went down to Peru uh, for a couple of research trips during grad school, and I did some research on the, the Nikkei population, the ethnic Japanese population mm -hmm. in Lima, and kind of looked at ethnic Japanese writers in Peru and the whole continuum of, like, first-generation Japanese who were there and were writing still in Japanese, uh, and then... At, as the second generation came in and they kind of evolved towards Spanish. And then third and fourth generations and people who are kind of part Japanese and part, you know, uh, Peruvian or other ethnicities. Yeah. I'm um, looking at what ethnic identity means as they kind of get farther and farther away from, you know, this imaginary epicenter of, of Japanese-ness. And, and uh, so writers like Jose Watanabe and Fernando Iwasaki and stuff like that. Really, really a cool community. And went down there and hung out with the, the Japanese community and the Okinawan prefectural association and that's obviously a lot of locals. just a really unusual and unique situation just the the japan peru um little microcosm there of those two cultures and is that i mean yeah are there many examples of that globally i mean no, there probably are some but there's not i mean you know definitely the japanese diaspora the the, the biggest well, center of that is is brazil the second is peru and the third is the united states from my understanding or do you, you think you'll ever get involved back down there again in research or anything, translation? I would like to. Uh, I just translated something from Spanish on the Buto, modern dance form, uh, written by a guy from Mexico. Um, so, you know, from Spanish into English. And that's, you know, him writing in Spanish about Japanese culture and, wow, and about yeah. Japanese culture in Mexico. So, and I get those, th those requests from people that know my graduate work and they know that I do stuff kind of between Japan and Latin America. So th those requests come in once in a while, but. Yeah, where do you see yourself in 10 years? 
10 years. Okay, well, there's a, there's a number there's a number of different tracks. I'm really enjoying really enjoying poetry, um, really enjoying the opportunities that come from that. And I, I feel like there's much, much more. Uh, I feel like I'm yeah. just coming into my own. And now when I go places, people are like, oh, you're yeah. Jordan Smith. I've heard about you. And not that I'm like, you know, famous or something ridiculous like that. But it just means that within my industry, people are finally starting to know who I am. And yeah. that's, you know, at 41, that's not exactly a major accomplishment. At 41, you should, I think, well, it's pretty it's normal to be known in your field. You, well, yeah, the yeah. poetry aspect in and that's I mean, true. wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's true. It's true, but I would I would really love to um, to keep working on writing in Japanese and yeah. writing kind of between languages and doing creative projects. I also have had more opportunities to collaborate with other writers and other types of artists, and um, I'm right now like planning some collaborations with uh, a filmmaker who's also coming to the event today, Sasaki Makoto. He's a he's a director and producer and stuff, and I like him a lot. And so I'm I'm hoping to collaborate more on creative stuff. That's so w with the aim of wishful thinking more than like actual, you know, any concrete proof to that would justify yeah, this yeah, prediction, yeah. like yeah. Th that's where I'd like to be is doing more creative stuff, maybe kind of in Tokyo or between Tokyo and California. Got ya. So. You think you would ever like get a gig with somebody like Haruki Murakami, some like that level of translation or is um, it yeah, something you would want to do? Or It's possible. I yeah. think, I mean, there's a lot of people who are already kind of lined up to translate yeah. Murakami, but... Um, and I'm I'm not like super duper interested, um, you know, in working on his stuff at this point. I think there's other people that that very capably handle translations of Murakami Haruki. But I yeah. but there are other writers. Like I'm more interested in finding the new writers who are going to be yeah, like what everyone great, calls uh, the next point. Murakami Haruki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there are actually a number of those writers who have said, you know, please translate my stuff or feel free to if you want to. And and so I I do Even plan better. on on working on that. And I also kind of pride myself right now on translating people that I think are are really going to be big time. And a lot of the poets have won major awards in Japan, but they're completely unknown outside of Japan. And so I try to find yeah. these poets that I think translate well and that are also doing something that doesn't fit necessarily with like what a Japanese author is supposed to do, and then try to try to introduce them to the the English speaking world. That's great. Yeah, I like I like that that track. I hope well, maybe so. Maybe we should wrap it up. You want to do a little say, thing? You want to do it walking down the street? Sure. Let's go. Mu ku hako ku hako danashi. Bokoko o stete ryugaku debanaku. Kaitaku no kyohaku no kohaku no shukaku. Shakuhachi no hashi o bokyaku ni kakeru. Shuraku ebacharu. Kyukaku debakaru. Ajisai no sai no golden gai no haru to natsu no aida. Chuto hampana jiki. Kofun to kafun, my nichi no hapu shiki like boom, boom, boom. Muku haku, ku haku danashi, bokoko stete, ryugaku debanaku, kaitaku no kyohaku no kohaku no shukaku, shakuhachi no hashi o bokyaku ni kakeru, shuraku ebataru, kyukaku debakaru, ajisai no sai no golden gai no haru, tonatsu no aida, chuto hampana jiki, kofun to kafun, my nichi no hapu shiki like boom. <laughs> hey dude, what's up? Hanging out. How you doing, man? Hanging out in I am in glamorous Chiba, Japan. What's new? Man, this was such a big year. Um 2018, um I had uh, a book of poetry come out with two Japanese poets and we got to debut it at University of Iowa and uh, Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City. Um thanks to a good friend of mine, Kendall Heitzman, who's a professor there. 
The book was called uh, Square Root of Icy Redux um, with Japanese poets Kanye Naha and Nagae Yuki. A really cool mix of um, bilingual mm-hmm. and multilingual poems, collaborations, all kinds of cool stuff. And then, um, oh man, too, way too much to even get into. But I guess the other the other big highlight was this project I ended up doing with BBC Radio 4. Um, a couple of producers came in from England and we journeyed to uh, the forest uh, called Aokigahara. Uh, that's the proper name, but it's also known as the, the Sea of Trees and uh, like the Jukai in Japanese. And then uh, globally and, and in Japan too, I think it's also known as the Suicide Forest. And it's at the base of Mount Fuji. And it's been getting a lot of um, pretty suspect press attention thanks to um, one kind of idiotic yeah. YouTuber and, um, you know, some sensational documentaries and stuff. Mm-hmm. So BBC Radio um, producer Anishka Sharma got this idea of wanting to visit the forest with a group of poets and to have, have them just kind of experience it as it is and see if, you know, really that it's just, you know, kind of steeped in its reputation or if you can have a more direct encounter with, with the forest itself, with the place itself. And, you know, what kind of a voice does the place itself have when you almost translate that feeling and that experience into poetry? So I went there with three Japanese poets. It was really, really cool trip. So we went there and we all like went our separate ways in the forest and went and hiked and had our experiences and, and wrote. And then we recorded readings of the poems in the forest. And um, and then it was made into a half an hour uh, radio spot for BBC Four. It was broadcast in September of uh, 2018, actually on International Suicide Prevention Day. Wow. I'll definitely put a link to the BBC thing there. So following up on that, all four of us wrote a few more poems in English or Japanese and then kind of worked together to translate them into the other language. And we produced a bilingual volume of poetry that's called Sea of Trees, Poetic Gateways to Aokigahara. That just came out from Tokyo Poetry Journal's um, imprint series in an 80-page book. And we're launching it actually tomorrow at uh, Amotesando Spiral kind of a discussion and reading event there. Was that a spiritual feeling for you, uh, being there, walking through the forest and, and creating poetry? How did that feel? What came out? Man, absolutely. The first second that you step into the forest of Aokigahara, um, it's an extremely powerful feeling. And I mean, it could come from a, a number of different sources. You know, there's a lot of different ways of explaining it. I think one mm-hmm. is, of course, that I had done background research and reading and had just heard about this place for years you know it's in Murakami Haruki's novel uh, Kafka on the Shore you know I'd seen the films I've seen the documentaries mm-hmm. and stuff so there, there's that and then there's also just my active imagination there's the fact that there's a huge sort of you know energy field and magnetic um, field and and just the, the pull of Mount Fuji because you're at the base and the forest grows over the the old lava flows because every time Fuji erupts um, it destroys that forest and um, and the lava cools mm-hmm. and then the forest kind of regrows over the lava. So it's this really like, you know, twisted, bent, kind of cavernous forest floor with roots sticking out in all these different directions. And it's a beautiful, peaceful, yeah. rich place in and of itself. And then when you add this, the reputation, not just of the suicides, but of the, the history and the legends mm-hmm. that go along with it. You know, there were cults as far back as, you know, five, six hundred, maybe longer years ago, um, that would make these pilgrimages from the, the Tokyo era or all around Japan 
uh, and people would go there to worship. They'd, they'd crawl into these kind of like lava caves at the base of Fuji, like, you know, among the roots in the forest and kind of, you know, pray. And it was also known as a forest where people would bring their, the elderly, like to kind of, you know, abandon them and, and let them die peacefully in the forest. And um, wow. so it's, it's just got, you know, all these different things going on in addition to just being a, a, a beautiful place, a beautiful, quiet, peaceful place, you know? Um, so yeah, it was. Did it feel haunted to you? I, you know, it felt alive and you could feel the voices. You could, you could hear the voices. It, it felt like there were as many sort of souls there as there were trees and there are as many, you know, trees as there are people mm-hmm. in Tokyo. So even though it felt like really peaceful and quiet, it also didn't feel lonely at all. You felt like you were just, you know, surrounded by, by life itself. I mean, it was a mysterious place, and I don't know, I may have said this in the BBC program or not, but, and, and I don't know if they cut this or not, because maybe it was too sort of weird to even put in the in a BBC radio program, but it really felt like at any moment, like walking across that forest floor, that a, a person or a being or something could just walk up and, you know, and I'd say, where, where are we, you know, and they'd say, oh, this is the other side, you know. I mean, it feels like a place that's in between life and yeah. death, in between this dimension and the next. Um, and it's, it's felt like a place where God or gods or or things that come and go between, you know, dimensions or worlds or levels would would just be chilling. You know, it was that kind of place. It's it's a very, very cool spot. Yeah. I, I definitely hope that our that the book will draw some attention to the place, not as just the scary, dark suicide uh, forest, because it's it's kind of right haunted, yeah not in a sensational way but like definitely with with presence that most places don't have that's cool well and then so okay so you got the bbc thing you got poetry yeah the other project that i have going is um i finished a kind of a small album project eight songs uh with darren dollinger goes by the name of d dollinger um he's he's done a couple of um, really really cool um, instrumental albums that have come out in the last couple of years and got some attention and um, he's out here in Saitama, and I've known him since California days, so we go way back and make a lot of stuff together. But um, I'm producing right now a, um, a uh, in Japanese they call it a shigashu. It's like a book that combines poetry and art. And uh, a lot of the songs were inspired by encounters with contemporary Japanese art. And so I've been working with the Mizuma Art Gallery uh, here in Tokyo, um, so it's going to be a blend of uh, the poems and the art in a book form, and then that will be linked to the music that'll be released somehow online. Either I'm not I'm not sure Spotify or you know iTunes or SoundCloud or something like yeah. that. Yeah. The two songs that I sent you are both from that album project, and the one is called "Naked Angels Didn't Descend." Three naked angels presented one hell of a spectacle The hottest apocalypse, sexy yet respectable Extraterrestrial, texting, voice messaging Choices and news flash, freshest when a specimen Breast growing with so like In a nutshell, what are some themes that you're rapping about? And you're rapping in English and in Japanese And you're kind of back and forth But kind of like, I have no idea what Jordan's talking about <laughs> <laughs> so like, What are you rapping yeah, about? Yeah, it's definitely some self-indulgent abstract lyrics there for sure um, Some of them are, I think, more accessible than others The, the ones that are probably the most accessible Accessible are ones that tell stories, and among those is probably Revolution of the Wolves, and it's a story of uh, of a kid who is abandoned in the in the woods. Maybe there's some kind of Aokigahara destination in there, but he's he's found by wolves, raised mm-hmm. by wolves. 
ends up like sort of wanting to rejoin human civilization. It doesn't go well. He's he's arrested. The, there ends up being a clash, but you know, between the wolves and the humans, and the mother wolf is killed, and he ends up going to rejoin the wolves, and then they sort of plan this all-out attack on human civilization, and and then when they arrive, human civilization has already self-destructed, and uh, there's no need for any kind of revolution or attack, you know. Um, so there's, you know, environmental themes are big, a lot of magical realism. The song Naked Angels Didn't Descend is about three naked angels who come crashing down in the fashion district of Los Angeles. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty much the angels come crashing down in the fashion district, destroy the city just through their impact, like a massive meteor strike or something. The whole city is kind of scrambled. And as it puts itself mm-hmm. back together, um, they end up wiring the angels veins into the into the city infrastructure and creating like the entire city as a direct um, passage to heaven and so it's you know it's a metaphor for a lot of things but it's also partly about the free flow and the free movement um, of people around this earth and and um, and into um, the other world or the afterlife or heaven. It's definitely a mix of like magical realism, storytelling and literary theory. Um, some of the other songs, like the one that I did on the street was called Muku Haku. And that one is really about about getting close to Japan, about being in between cultures, about being in between languages, about what that's like to exist as kind of half in both places or or equally 100% in both places and what that what that means to be comfortable and uncomfortable to different degrees in these different modes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, the English world and the Japanese world, I, not just for me, for a lot of people, but, you know, worlds based on language are not separated based on geography. They overlap a lot. So even as I move around Tokyo from one cafe to the next or from one art gallery to the next, it's going to be an English-speaking world or a Japanese-speaking world, or it's going to be a, a blend of those two. So it can even be turning from one person to the next or yeah. or whatever and learning everyone's different comfort levels with different languages, knowing which language you should speak at what speed and at what sort of degree of nativeness, you know, is this constant balancing act that I just kind of decided that I really wanted to be at home doing and I wasn't going to be conflicted about it or or whatever. And so Muku Haku is for me that the kind of anthem where I think probably very few people will listen to that and understand both the English and the Japanese and feel comfortable with all of it or kind of get all of it. But it's my own personal anthem in the sense that like, I feel like I'm the perfect listener or the perfect reader of that song. So it is kind of self-indulgent, but it's a process of me just trying to figure out where I'm at and who I've become because I'm definitely in different surroundings than what I grew up in. And I felt like I kind of needed this album project to put down some new roots right where I am instead of thinking my roots are supposed to be somewhere in the past Mm -hmm. or somewhere else or on a certain side of a border or something like that. Like my roots are where I am. Like this is where I am and I live here. Yeah, that was another one of my questions, kind of. It it leads into a question I had from our previous interview. And it's just that, you know, you have a Japanese wife and kids who are growing up in a multicultural Mm -hmm. family. And you were talking about in the interview, you've had like seven moves of, you know, 5,000 miles and, or, you know, a couple of major moves around the around the globe, back and forth, L.A. and uh, Japan. Or is there a key to making that work? Not everybody could do that. Mm-hmm. How does your family, you and Kazuko and your kids, how do you make that work? Like that's, 
you know? Yeah, yeah. That, I think that's a great question. And I think there are some, I think there are some keys to making it work. I mean, I, I think different people do that. And obviously the experience is very different depending on your economic level, right? I mean, there's people that do that for fun all the time. And there's people mm-hmm. who are, you know, wealthy and have houses, you know, in 10 different countries and just kind of move around as they like. And that's no big deal to them. Um, and then there's, yeah. there are people who are traveling the world as refugees going from country to country, you know, hoping to find asylum or, or something. And they've, they've got a much, much harder time of it. And, you know, we're somewhere in the middle, you know, we've typically when we've moved, we've yeah. moved with just barely enough or not quite enough money to get ourselves to where we were going kind of sort of get set up with a little help from friends and neighbors and i think rest contentedly with what we had you know we never arrive somewhere like oh we have to have this or we have to have that furniture or immediately we have to be set up it was like okay we're going to be cooking out of one pot for a while or you know we're going to be we're going to be uh, enjoying several meals mm-hmm. based on the zucchini that the neighbors gave us from their garden or you know what I mean? Like just just living kind of simply and then slowly kind of building up the, the comforts. And so, you know, like since we came to Japan, yeah, yeah. like as my career progressed a bit and I came here as a, you know, as associate professor, um, it's not a super high paying job, but at least it's like a stable, you know, decent kind of middle class income. So when we came here, you know, we slowly got set up with a kind of middle class, mm-hmm. you know, suburban Japan um, lifestyle. We have a heater. We used to not have a heater in our cold ass house. Cold, cold for us, you know, with our Los Angeles blood. But, but you know, the house got a little yeah. bit warmer. The house got a little more comfortable. Um, we got a small, you know, cheap car that you know now we can take little road trips in. You know, stuff like that. But our family has always kept it kind of simple. And the main thing that we spend money on is like groceries. You know, to like be able to cook nice meals together and um, and then on uh, on traveling. And that's like, that's pretty much all we really spend anything on. So I think that the key is like simplicity. And I think that like for us, that simplicity has also kept us together. I think if we had like, if we always had, you know, like luxury and could all just like get whatever we wanted all the time, it might reflect on our attitudes. But I think we all know, like, you know, we spend a lot of time together and, um, and we get along and we compromise as much as possible. I think that's actually probably better than doing it luxury class yeah. at least for for me another thing too is that like you didn't have to do it that way you know you've been employable you could have stayed in either of those cities that whole time True. and found gainful employment what what attracted you to wanting to do oh, that man make those big moves and bouncing <laughs> back and forth between cultures with your whole I don't know, family? a couple of a couple of things or a few things maybe i mean insanity has got to be a big one wanderlust is another one yeah, you got a good dose of yeah. both of those. And then uh, maybe delusions of grandeur. Um, I mean, you know, it's like we wanted our kids to have um, a diverse experience. We wanted them to see different parts of the world, and we wanted to experience that with them. Um, you know, our first yeah. big move to Rhode Island was the first tenure track job. So you say yes. You know, and Rhode Island was also a cool place, and it was a neat university, and we, we really enjoyed it. And we, we would have stayed there. And then the tenure track job in Long Beach came up and that seemed like a really obvious decision to move back to the West Coast where we all my family is and we love so much. And then this Japan offer came and it's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, the kids have never experienced Japan, you know, like we'll all learn a lot in the process and we're doing that. And now it looks like, you yeah. know, in the in the near future we may be engineering a move, you know, back to back to LA. So 
it's hard to say, but uh, we always yeah. we always were choosing something that we felt like would bring us an adventure and a new experience. And and yes, in every in every case, it was a positive thing. We've never left a place because we ran out of options. We always left a place because we actively wanted to see what else there was and see what was coming next. You know, what more the world had to offer in terms of experiences and new friends and yeah. stuff like that. That's cool. I think uh, I think that could be inspirational to a lot of people too. Just um, like if a single person like myself, you know, can do it, it's quite easy actually, obviously. But you know, when, but it's also possible for somebody like yourself who's you know got a wife and two kids, and I, I think that's awesome. God's architecture always works with the bricks we built, and he always sends emissaries and forms the locals will instinctively worship. Naked angels didn't descend, they came crashing down, crushing traffic in the fashion district, laughing out hymns, chortling Thanks for listening, and please look out for the next episode. I'm super stoked to finally share my interview, my unusual and fun interview with Dave Sperling, a very early internet entrepreneur and a legend to thousands of English teachers around the globe for his website, Dave's ESL Cafe. And please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to get new episodes and head over to rutabaga.org, R-O-O-T-A-B-A-G-A dot O-R-G for links to the original music you hear in the podcast. And also a huge thanks to Jordan for his time and my buddy and colleague Connor Doherty for his really helpful feedback on Rutabaga. And until the next episode. Crash in a Playboy Mansion. Bunnies bugging the smug, plugging into the Charlie Manson. Foy at a parlor, a star in a velvet smoking jacket. Like, what's up, Doc? Hair clean but unkempt. Face obscured by lingering smoke, ribbons and mint. A chin here, eye there, another hint of a smile. Bibliophile on the wreckage of carnal knowledge compiled. In this way, the angels reassemble the conjunction of aesthetics and ethics. Their new habitus fit the city like a feather mantle.